Okay, let's uh, pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the Bible, for the Holy Spirit, and for the teachers that you have given to the church throughout the ages. Father, we ask that our lesson today would be honoring to you, that it would be useful to us, and Lord, that you would please protect us from error. Today we deal with a difficult subject, as you know, and we just ask that you help us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So just a little note, if I have to bust out of here, it's for medical reasons. Uh, I had medical work done on Tuesday, and so it's not that I, you know, can't stand looking at you or or something. (laughs) And uh, in addition to that, I'm, I've been blessed with uh, allergy voice. So, you know, you put the two together, we hope we make it. So, we have been uh, looking at the biblical way of life. The biblical way of life includes marriage for many people, for many people. And we've learned some things, very plain, very clear teaching about marriage from the Bible. And uh, those things are, number one, this is time for you all to speak. (laughs) Marriage is for a man and for a woman. Excellent. Why is that important today? Because lots of people don't believe that. That's right. And what God says is right, and what everybody else says that's different from that, they're wrong. Okay? What else have we learned about marriage? One man. One woman. That is the original design of marriage, one man and one woman. What else? In terms of the purpose of marriage, marriage exists so that uh, there'll be children, right? Right? Well, there'll be children. What else? Help and companionship. Absolutely. And for those of us that are married, we, we know that uh, it's very, very important for us to have help. It's very important for us not to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. And the first time I encountered this was in reading something from R.C. Sproul, other than execution, what is the most severe form of punishment we have in our country? Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. Excellent. And what else? Sexual gratification. Okay? And God has created us as sexual beings, and we have a unit a little later on having to do with pornography and some other things, and we'll get into this. Um, Yeah, basically that's what marriage is for. That's what marriage is for. And we also see, plainly from the Bible, that the design of marriage is that marriage is something that will last throughout the entire life of the people that are married. Okay? No marriage in eternity, 
contrary to what the Mormons tell us. No marriage in eternity. We'll look at that a little bit later. But um, the design of marriage is for the entire lifespan of the people that are married. Okay? The way it's supposed to be. But now we live in a sinful world, right? And marriage in a sinful world does not always match up to those things which um, are intended. And so there is the reality of marriages breaking up, or we might say marriages failing. Uh, We call it divorce. We call it divorce. And so we are looking at what the Bible teaches us about divorce. And we're going to consider Old Testament and then New Testament. Once we've completed that, we're going to take a look at the issue of remarriage. Take a look at the issue of remarriage. In my opinion, which is not worth much, and that's serious, the very best book ever written on the subject of divorce is John Murray's little book called Divorce. It's technical, and it really helps to know the languages, the original languages. I can do a little bit with Greek, but nothing with Hebrew. Nevertheless, this is the very best that I know of. An alternative, which is more popular, is the work written by Lorraine Bettner, wonderful author, um, One of the things that's so nice about his books is there's some work involved in in reading them, but they're very plainly written and very easy to understand. Of course, in this book, he quotes a lot of Murray, and so if Murray's tough, then this book also is going to be tough. But uh, these are are two good books. Um, And so today we'll begin the subject of what the Old Testament teaches about what the Old Testament teaches about divorce. Just checking to make sure Sarah copied it right. She did. Okay. There's really, I think, one basic passage that we need to look at regarding divorce. And uh, that is found in Deuteronomy. And it is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And so that we all have the same translation, uh, I've written it for you. And uh, I think my fallible, ignorant opinion, if someone wanted me to use a version of the Bible that um, not necessarily the easiest to understand, but a version of the Bible that um, probably is the most literal, I would choose the New American Standard 1995, the update edition. And that's what I have given you here. And so... New American Standard, updated edition, 1995. 
Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some, and that's a transliteration of the Hebrew. In other words, the Hebrew letters are converted into English letters. This is not a translation. It is a conversion from Hebrew into English. And it reads, Arvath Tabar, the way I pronounce it. Is that right? Well, since the original Hebrew in which this is written is a dead language, there's nobody here that can police me on that. So that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. Um, So again, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some hervath tabar, translated here, indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And that is the passage, the main passage in the Old Testament that defines or explains when divorce may take place. Uh, There can be no doubt that the Mosaic law allowed or permitted fault-based divorce. Now, last time we saw that there are three views about divorce. One, no divorce ever is possible, and by that I mean right or acceptable. Never, ever. The other view is that divorce is allowed or permitted or acceptable when there is a fault. Someone has done something wrong. And then the last view, which became law, I believe, in Arizona back in about 1972, no-fault divorce. People can divorce and no one has done anything wrong can't point the finger of blame to anyone. It's just something that didn't work out. Okay? It appeared to be a good idea at the time, but nah, it's not working, so it will end. No-fault divorce. So it is my considered opinion that the Old Testament does, in fact, teach fault-based divorce. I don't see any way around this. Now, there are people that disagree with me, and and we'll look at that. 
Uh, now, Jesus will comment on this in the Gospel of Matthew, which we will consider later. We'll look at the two passages, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about divorce, talks about divorce in the Old Testament, but that's down the road. Now, it is generally agreed that the literal meaning of Ervath Debar is nakedness of a thing. That's the literal meaning of those two words. Nakedness of a thing. Well, what in the world is that? Uh, Well, it's going to be difficult to say. Here are some English Bible translations of Ervath Debar. The old King James translates it uncleanness. The American Standard Version translates it unseemly thing. The New King James, as with the King James, translates it uncleanness. The NIV, the original NIV 1973 version of it, I don't know what the post-85 is, indecent. The ESV translates it indecency. So we need to ask the question, what is God telling us is the fault for divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1? What is it? Now let's look at historically what the Jews have said about this. The Jews themselves during Old Testament times were divided on this, and there were basically two schools of thought, two schools of thought regarding what Ervath Habar means. There were two main interpretations of these words by the rabbis, what might be called the conservative, which followed the school of Shammai, and then the liberal, which followed the school of Hillel, uh, the names of two very well-known rabbis. We all know what a rabbi is? Uh, Okay. Uh, the conservative understanding was immodest behavior. Immodest behavior. And by that was meant some serious, sinful activity probably related to sex. Probably related to sex. Now what I'm going to teach you, and I may be wrong, but I'll tell you why I teach you this. This is not something having to do with sex. This is not something having to do with sexual sin. It's not. Why? Well, because in the Mosaic Law, when you start going down the list of sexual sins, okay, you find that the Mosaic Law response to sexual sins is not divorce, it's death. Okay? So I, I marry a gal and she commits adultery, which will be defined a little later, or incest, or homosexuality, or some of these other things, what does the law of Moses require? It requires her to die. Okay? In which case, you don't divorce somebody that's going to die, right? So that's my main argument. That's my main argument for this position. But nevertheless, uh, there, there, there were a number of Jews which understood this 
immodest behavior to involve some serious sinful activity probably related to sex. Now, the liberal understanding was anything displeasing to the husband, anything displeasing to the husband, and I think this is what Jesus is going to be talking about in Matthew 5, in this context, Matthew 5, but that's to jump ahead. So the liberal understanding was anything displeasing to the husband. Uh, This could be something like, in the way you find it in the Mishnah, spoils a man's food. If the wife is consistently spoiling a man's food, in other words, she can't cook, that would be grounds for divorce. So we've got we've got the conservative and we've got the very liberal, which could be anything. You know, she snores and I gotta get up in the morning and plow the field, and I go into the other room and she snores so loud that I don't know what's gonna happen to me and I'm going out of my mind. I can't, I can't, I can't that that could be considered grounds. Could be. Very, very, very loose, very liberal. But what does God intend to tell us with these words? Well, John Murray claims that this exact expression, Ervathabar, you find it only one place in the Old Testament. There's only one place. And that place is in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Okay? And so, excuse me, 23. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy and he must not see anything, and there we have the expression, ervath tabar, anything among you or he will turn away from you. Now what's the context here? Well, you open up 23 and you start reading it, and the context is, when you relieve yourself, you're to cover up your elimination. Okay? When you relieve yourself, you're to cover up your elimination. And so, this is what the expression means in this particular case. People that have gone to the bathroom in the camp and have not taken the time to cover up their business. Okay? Interesting. Now, here the context makes clear that the indecent means human stool that is left uncovered. The most important concern people have about the meaning of Ravatavar is, does it only refer to some type of sexual misconduct prior to or during the marriage, for example, adultery. And here is my considered opinion. Considered this for a number of years. I am convinced that Ervatavar cannot mean the sexual sin of adultery because the law of Moses required death for this sin. And 
I mean, it, it's just laid, laid out plain and simple. Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22. Why divorce someone that will die, assuming that they are prosecuted and convicted? Also, there are a number of other sins mentioned in Deuteronomy 22 that require a response other than divorce, in some cases death, in other cases fines, and in other cases marriage, but not divorce. So let's look at that Deuteronomy 22 passage. Uh, Again, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard uh, Update. So we've got a number of cases here. Sexual sins, okay? And you won't find any of these sexual sins responded to by the command of God for divorce. Or if you do, then you found something I haven't found. All right. So, Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning at verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and the girl's mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin, but this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city, so the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father, because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel, and she shall remain his wife, He cannot divorce her all his days. Can't be done. Verse 20. But if this charge is true, the girl was not found virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lie with the woman and who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. 
the girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. 28. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her, and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. So we have a number of sexual sins here, and none of them are listed in terms of the response or the remedy for this is you go and get divorced. Also, we need to take into consideration a number of other sexual sins. And these sexual sins, furthermore, divorce was not the response required by God for homosexuality. There you find it, Leviticus 20.13. Bestiality, Leviticus 20.15 and 16. And incest. In the Mosaic Law, death was required. All these sexual sins are possible in a marriage. But now notice that the Mosaic Law did not say the response to this is you divorce. The response to this is the person that is guilty of homosexuality or bestiality or incest, they're to die. Trial is to be conducted. There's procedures for that. There need to be witnesses and in all of this. So divorce was not the response required by the Mosaic Law for these sexual sins. So that is my defense for the view that Ervath Habar is not sexual misconduct. That's my defense. Is it good enough? Well, some people think it's not. I think it is. What other things could be considered serious wrongdoings that would be allowed as grounds for divorce under the Mosaic economy? Well, they're not sexual sins, and we're not going to go with a, you know, she burns my food or she snores too loud. There's got to be something significant or serious. Well, then what is it? Well, this is difficult to answer, I think, with any detail and precision. Well, what about long-term extreme unwillingness to submit to a husband's leadership? What about the inability to have children? What about a history of flirtatious behavior and um, public uh, misconduct in terms of uh, improper clothing or hairstyle or something like that? Well, these may be faults, 
they may be, that are examples of Vervatabar. When it is all said and done, though I believe John Murray, Dr. Murray said, and I quote, it has to be admitted that it is extremely difficult, if not precarious, to be certain as to what the unseemly thing really was. Very difficult to nail that down. I don't think it's anything trivial. Small Mickey Mouse, you know, she burns my toast. You know, for 13 years she's been burning my toast, and I can't handle it. Or something like, um, you know, snores, you know, something like that. No. Not something trivial like that, and if it's not sexual, then something in between. And uh, there are some other things that people have suggested. I'll not go into them. Um, indecent exposure that was accidental. Accidental. Uh, that has been suggested. And, and other things. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But it's something significant. Um, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 does not require or command divorce for Ervath Tabar. This is, this is important. It, it allows or it permits, but it does not command divorce for Ervath Tabar. Normally, we consider actions as either required or forbidden by God. However, there are many actions that are neither required nor forbidden. What would be an example of an action that God neither requires nor forbids? Say what? Yeah, yeah. I put the Thousand Island dressing on my um, uh, potatoes. Okay? Some people put ketchup. Neither required nor forbidden unless, you know, I have a food allergy or something else is going on. There are a lot of things. This is the area of what we'll call Christian freedom, which we will talk about at length later. Okay? A lot of things that are neither required nor forbidden. Now it's going to get really tough here. Now it's going to get really tough here. So these actions that are neither required nor forbidden, uh, they are allowed, they are permitted, but Jesus is going to indicate that divorce in the, divorce in the Old Testament was something that did not quite fit into the category of allowed, permitted, it fit into the category of tolerated. Okay? Tolerated. Or it was something that God was going to put up with. All right? Put up with. Now that's, now that's, I think, opening ground for another category. Or opening ground for another category. Right, wrong, an area of freedom. Now we got this opening up, possibly, of another category. And we'll have to get into this when we get into the two passages in Matthew. So, 
Deuteronomy 24.1 places divorce in the moral spiritual category of allowed but not required, which is to say divorce is neither required nor forbidden. Now, Jesus will tell us divorce was allowed because of the hardness of your heart, which will be considered, we'll consider this uh, more in detail later. Uh, Based on the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, marriage was to be permanent. However, according to the Mosaic law, marriage is a marriage in a sinful world may be temporary because of Ervatabar. Very well known passage, and I don't know why the word hate does not occur in the ESV in the latest edition of the ESV, but Malachi 2.16 often is translated, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. And the, the normal, the standard English Bible versions that we have has that word hate. The Lord hates divorce which may indicate the divorce in the Old Testament was tolerated, which is somewhat different from saying that it was an option for someone. And what is meant when we say something is tolerated? Well, probably it means tolerated indicates that somebody is doing something that is wrong, but they incur no guilt or no penalty for it. And so this is going to be a real tough thing to hammer out. And I'll tell you right now, if I'm here next week and we open this up, I'm not going to be 100% sure what to say about this. And this is going to be very, very similar to the issue of polygamy, having more than one wife. It was tolerated by God. And some people interpret this as it was wrong, but God is not going to attach guilt to it for some reason. The other view is that it was not wrong, it was a freedom, but it was temporary. And the debate on that goes, it continues to go on and on and on and on and on. All right, next item, we got seven minutes. The majority of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 deals with the question of remarriage. In the case of a woman that has been officially divorced by a written certificate of divorce. Verse 4, 24-4, forbids a divorced and remarried woman from remarrying her first husband. Why? Because she is defiled. Which is not explained. This defilement makes it sin for her to remarry her first husband. Notice the passage does not forbid this woman forbid this woman from remarrying a third time or a fourth time. It just forbids remarrying the first husband that divorced her. But why is this? Well, there's a good reason for it. Very good reason for it. I just don't know what it is. Also, this passage does not prevent the divorced woman from returning to her original husband if she does not remarry someone else. Why is that? I don't know. (laughs) 
Yesterday, I'm going to a store that I've been wanting to go to for a long time with my wife. I figured it was okay to get up and move, move around a little bit. And my wife likes to ask questions. Just a lot of questions. And I'm normally pretty tolerant of that. Some people are like that. And so we're driving down the freeway, and she started asking me questions. I, I, I said, I don't know. Then she re-asks the, basically the same question in another way. Okay? I said, Sarah, I don't know. And so I didn't, but at one point I was um, about ready to say, stop asking questions. There, and there's a time when we need to stop asking questions. There just is a time. Um, okay, last point here is we see the requirement of a written bill or a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1. Why is this? Probably it would prevent husbands from divorcing wives in haste without careful consideration. Now that's a speculation, but I think it's probably a reasonable speculation. It would take some time to write this out and formally present it and so forth and so on. And we all, what? We all can blow up, have a quick uh, uncontrolled moment, and this would probably tend to calm that down, mitigate it. Uh, It is also, in limited sense, I think, a protection for the woman by making her divorce official or legal and thereby allowing her to remarry anyone else that would have her as his wife. In this case, the remarriage is not a case of adultery. Why? Because there's this certificate. Uh, The oral tradition of Jewish law, the Mishnah, which eventually uh, the the rabbinical interpretation of, of the Old Testament. So in the Mishnah, it states that a certificate of divorce was not valid unless it said, and here's the translation in Gittin 3, thou art free to marry any man. And so, my conclusion that I think is right, I hope is right, Mosaic Law allowed for fault-based divorce, having to do with some serious misconduct of a wife. By the way, the Mosaic Law also allowed for a wife to divorce a husband. Very rare, a little bit different, the procedure, but it was there. So what is this serious fault? I don't believe it's something trivial, and I don't believe it's something sexual. So that is my... Uh, that's my conclusion. We got a couple of minutes. Any comments or any questions? We're going to take a look at what Jesus says. And I'm going to... I'll talk about it briefly later, but the New Covenant has replaced the Old Covenant. And the New Covenant will have some changes. There will be some differences. 
Jesus came to fulfill the law, not destroy it, not a jot or tittle. Nothing from the law is going to be removed or destroyed until everything has been fulfilled. Uh, We take a look at the New Testament and his teaching about divorce next time, and we'll take a look at this. Uh, And it's going to be complicated. It's going to be complicated. Now, there are people who... Unbelievers who um, take a look at these requirements for death penalty and the Mosaic Law, and they come up with real ugly, nasty criticisms of God and the people of God. My response is, I don't believe that justice is relative I don't believe that God makes mistakes. And I believe that what God calls a sin crime at any given time and indicates the appropriate punishment, the deserved punishment for that, technically called the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, based on retribution, which is not necessarily revenge. It is my firm conviction that whatever God said needed to be done to these people in the Mosaic Law, that was holy, righteous, and just. That was fair. Now, the next question is, well, what about us today? What about us today? The Old Covenant has been replaced by the New, and there are a lot of uh, differences of opinion about this, but for a lot of years I've considered this, and I've asked people, If the job of government is to respond in a just way to crime, to punish criminals the way God intends criminals to be punished, where do we get information in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, about how criminals are to be punished? There's next to nothing. There's a couple of statements... um, you know, I have done this and I deserve to die and therefore it be righteous for me to die. There are a couple of places like that. But other than that, where do you go to determine what sin is a crime and how that crime is to be punished? Where do you go in the New Testament to get that information? And the answer is in the New Testament, where do you go to get that information and you don't go anywhere really to get that information, do you? I don't think so, but this is another. When we deal with criminal punishment, which is a unit, social issue unit, in the biblical way of life, what does God tell us about what government is to be doing, what sins are crimes, and how the government is to respond to these sin crimes? Where do you go in the Bible? Well, the Mosaic Law is gone, okay? All right? Well, where do you go? You can think about that if I'm alive long enough to be here for that unit. uh, You can tell me where we go if we don't go to the Mosaic Law. Hey, you tell me. And the alternative to that is some kind of um, uh, natural law, natural theology law, 
which we'll get into, and that is kind of uh, anybody's guess. So, and we pray. Lord, thank you for your word, your authoritative word, your law regarding how we are to live. And although we do confess at times it's hard for us to understand certain things, uh, your law is plain, it is clear, and we're to submit to it, we're to be thankful for it, and we're to praise you for it, which we do at this time. Help us as we worship you. May our worship be in spirit and in truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.